3: He nai nā te reo irirangi o Hello. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World, Ko Alice in Balance, TNE. In the final show for 2019, we are going to think big. Science broadcaster Damien Christie is going in search of answers to a question that is much beloved of children. Where did I come from? His journey is going to take him from billions of years ago and the beginning of the universe to the last few thousand years. Damien's first port of call is theoretical astrophysicist, Associate Professor JJ Eldridge from the University of Auckland.
4: Child or children? Children? Have you got one, two children? I've got one child, yeah. You've got one child. How old's your child? Six. Has your child started to ask you questions about, you know, where did I come from? <laughs>
1: Um, Well, there weren't lots of whys and hows, but uh, I mean, we discussed this anyway, because she knows I'm an astronomer and she knows my wife is a scientist. So we do kind of try and get these exciting discussions going. Regardless of what biology and how long that's taken over billions of years to give rise to us, you've got to ask where does the stuff that makes us come from and we're carbon-based life forms. So where does the carbon come from? Because 13.8 billion years ago, when the universe was formed there was only hydrogen and helium which are these really simple elements with just very limited chemistry and life wasn't possible because you need all these other elements um, and stars make those normally we think we always teach students that stars make the elements in the center in the center of our sun it's burning hydrogen to helium in the future it'll burn the helium to carbon and oxygen you think oh that's great because we breathe oxygen you know and we need carbon for our proteins now um bodies but That all gets locked away in the centre of the star and it never gets out. So there's actually this big question of how do you get the elements out of stars? And that's why we need to explode them. And that's the only way that in those explosions it can actually then get distributed and get into the universe to make planets and us.
4: Because we're not just made out of – we are carbon-based life forms, Mm -hmm. but we have other stuff inside us as well, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, off the top of my head, somebody will probably tell me I'm wrong, but we need carbon, we need nitrogen, we need oxygen, we need calcium for our bones, we need iron for the haemoglobin in our blood, and many other elements in more trace um, varieties, like phosphorus, I think, we even need.
4: Let's talk about the iron, though. So so the iron in our blood, where does that come from originally?
1: Originally. Well, iron – and iron group elements, so things like iron, nickel, and cobalt, are some of the most stable elements in the universe. And stars can get energy out by fusing them in their cores all the way up to iron. But, of course, that's in the center of the star, so it never gets out. And so we need another way of trying to get these really extreme burning reactions. And the only way you can do that is to explode a star. And, I mean,
4: we don't, well, this is not something we can do. I mean, but No, we, we can't. We- <laughs>
1: I mean, we can I think try
4: the, the evil Galactic Empire can do it sometimes, perhaps, but uh, but not us. So, so, the, but this is a process that happens naturally.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we, can, the even more interesting thing is, we can see how iron has evolved at a different rate to other elements like oxygen in the universe, which is because they're being formed by different stars. So the iron is formed um, by stars like our sun. If the sun was in a binary system and what's a binary system a binary system is two stars orbiting around each other so they're locked in each other's gravity a bit like the earth and the moon you could consider them to be a binary planet because they go around each other the difference for binary star system is that stars get bigger as they get older and so they can actually get in each other's way and they can have these what you can term a hectic lifestyle because they can um exchange mass and so one can get bigger one can get smaller and they can even merge and become a really strange type of superstar that will have an interesting life as it evolves
4: and so they so they get big sometimes as you say they, they they'll absorb each other mm. they'll just rock around together and and then
1: ultimately let's get back to the iron so how does the iron happen so let's go back to this binary system we have mm. two stars orbiting around each other um one will get old and get um and die in quotation marks um by transferring some of its material over to the other one so the other one gets bigger and what you have is this star called a white dwarf that's just a leftover remnant it's that carbon and oxygen that doesn't otherwise get out of the star and it's just sitting there and it won't do anything else because it's not big enough to burn those elements into heavier um elements but then that companion which accreted the material that carries on evolving and that can actually get bigger and that can transfer material over to the white dwarf and that white dwarf if it gets big enough and massive enough about one and a half times the mass of the sun it collapses under its own gravity and this is kind of interesting because lots of things do this when it gets too massive and what happens depends on what it's made of and because this white dwarf is made of carbon and oxygen it collapses down and it gets to a point where the carbon ignites so it's a bit like burning coal a bit like burning no (laughs) again because burning coal goes to chemistry Oh, okay and so that's where you get your carbon you react it with oxygen and so it's just the electrons doing it right with this because you're smashing atoms and nuclei together you get so much more energy millions of times more energy than you would do from a chemical reaction which is why stars live so long and why when this thing explodes it can actually outshine all the stars in the galaxy for a few weeks which is amazing, you've got 100 or 200 billion stars in a galaxy and yet one exploding star can be brighter than all those stars combined. Wow. And in that, all that carbon oxygen or most of it gets burnt through to iron. The reaction is so intense and so extreme that you get basically almost a solar mass or mass of, sun's mass worth of iron.
4: So do you uh, for, for a moment, have you got an entire, sort of almost like a death star, just to keep using the Star Wars analogy, a big sphere of of iron sitting there no oh. so it's it's these explosions because that weird. would be a lot more picturesque if that was the case
1: yeah yeah <laughs> but it, you can imagine because you like the death star analogy right <laughs> let's go back to the death film We see it exploding and there's nothing left over so most um supernovae there's always something left over in the center but with this kind of explosion the entire thing explodes and expands and as it's exploding as expand and expanding All that carbon oxygen is getting burnt through to iron. So you've got all this iron being thrown out at high velocities, and that's where it gets mixed into the next generation of stars and where then in the future, if we see one today, you'll get planets and life forms hopefully in the future using that iron.
4: So it's kind of more like, I don't know, a a, a squillion uh, ball bearings exploding, iron ball bearings exploding across into space. Yes,
1: microscopic, (laughs) nano-sized ball bearings, yeah.
4: And then... And then how does it end up inside us? That's probably, I'm probably talking to the wrong person about that one, am I? I don't know. No, I mean, so,
1: um, yeah, so it's all this gas in the galaxy gets mixed up of all the stars dying in all the different ways and it all gets mixed together and eventually something, maybe they get a shock from a super, another supernova or something and it collapses down and it collapses down and it keeps on collapsing down until you form at the centre of this big cloud, a very dense clump that's going to eventually become a star. But you also get a disc around that star And that's where all the planets form. And depending on where the planet is and how close it is to the star, um, if it's quite close to the star, there'll probably be more iron and more silicon and more um, carbon and other things, heavier elements in the planets than if they're further out, where you've got more of the hydrogen and helium. Because it's colder, that doesn't get pushed away so much. And so you get planets like Jupiter and Saturn, which are very hydrogen and helium rich, those simple light elements. Whereas it's the terrestrial worlds like Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars keep on to more of that heavier elements. And so, I mean, although the Earth is, I think, if I remember correctly, mostly oxygen by mass, silicon second and iron comes last. But it's still got a lot more than the other gas giant planets further out.
4: And that's where we come from. And that's where we come from. (laughs) It's a bit of a jump from 4.5 billion years ago when Earth was formed from all that gas and space dust to the period of history covered by my next expert, a mere couple of hundred thousand years ago. I first met Oxford-based archaeologist and radiocarbon dating specialist Tom Hyam last year when he was inducted as a Fellow of the Royal Society Te Aparangi. In a ten-minute chat, he blew apart everything I thought I knew about where we came from, and I wanted to know more.
0: So... Ultimately, I guess um, your origins are in Africa you're an African uh, ultimately, and we know that from um, many many decades, if not um, centuries of archaeological and paleoanthropological research. Charles Darwin was the first one really to uh, write down that he felt that uh, our ultimate origins were in Africa and that's because the great apes our nearest relatives on the planet earth uh, that's where that's where they live and so he suggested that if we're going to look for our ultimate origins, then that would be the best place to, to, to first um, to first explore um, our, our origins. And, and ultimately, that, that has come to pass. So there is a huge amount of fossil evidence now that has been gathered by um, people over the last uh, few decades that suggests that um, Africa is where the earliest evidence for our own species evolves, and that takes place at around two to two two and a half million years ago when we find the first evidence of the genus Homo. Um, our anatomically modern human ancestry dates back to probably around two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand years ago in africa and again, the fossil evidence is is pretty consistent with and the dates are pretty consistent with the idea that that 's where we 're ultimately from and finally the the next uh, major piece of evidence is. Uh, is genetics, and we know that the genetic diversity of modern-day Africans is much higher than the genetic diversity of everybody outside Africa, and that supports the idea that people outside Africa are the result of a smaller group of people leaving Africa in what we call the so-called founder effect.
4: It almost seems sort of, I mean, it makes sense the way you talk about it, it almost it almost seems counterintuitive, doesn't it, that the rest of the world has a lot less diversity than than, than one small, relatively small group.
0: Yeah, um, it's it's really quite um, it's it's become much more complicated. We always used to think that a small group of humans uh, left Africa, uh, uh, butted off from from the African uh, continent, and, and left um, probably at around fifty or perhaps hundred and twenty thousand years ago. That there's been a bit of debate about precisely which date, but we now know that there is a lot more complexity in Africa, and the idea that there was a single population that's ancestral to us is probably not true. In fact, what happened in Africa was probably that there were lots of different groups of humans uh, living in different parts of Africa, and it's a lot more complex than we thought before. There were periods where they interacted with each other, genetically and culturally, and, but ultimately um, it was the case that a smaller group of people must have left, and we think that the main um, options that they would have had were to leave across the Sinai, the um, little peninsula that links Africa to Europe, or across the straits at the very southern point of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, the so-called Bab al mandab Straits. And so through one of these two um, ways, we we think that humans moved out of Africa and into the rest of what we call the old world into Eurasia. Um, and the, the, the last few years have seen a tremendous um, in, increase in our understanding. of of when this happened. So we now have evidence just in the last few months that there must have been a much earlier exodus of humans or early modern humans up to about 270,000 years ago because we have evidence for that in Greece. Some fossil remains were found in Greece. And later we have evidence for modern humans in Israel at two very important archaeological sites that were excavated early in the 20th century. And that's about 120,000 years ago. But the main exodus, the main group of people moving out of Africa, probably was much later than that, between 50 to 60,000 years ago, and that's where we find suddenly a great diaspora of people moving into places like Australia, Southeast Asia. We think Australia was probably settled around 60 to 65,000 years ago, and there are other modern human groups that by that stage also in places like um, islands Southeast Asia and Indonesia and and, and so on. And there's possibly earlier modern humans that make it into China, although the evidence there is a lot more controversial.
4: So you're saying some of this new this new work has only just come out in the last last couple of months. So it's a, this is really still a very much, a, excuse the pun, but an evolving field.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the story of human evolution is really fast moving. Um, And every few months, something else happens that just blows a hole in what we understood before or adds a great deal more to what we understood before. So, for example, it's only in the last nine years that we've discovered another group of humans that were living in the world. Um, We call these archaic humans because they split off from our ancestors a a, a very long time ago. So you can imagine them as we know Neanderthals. so, So you can imagine them as sort of close cousins of Neanderthals. And these are the Denisovans. So. Outside of Africa, when our ancestors moved into um, into Eurasia, they, they interacted and met with these groups of humans that had been living outside of Africa for much longer. And these included Neanderthals in the west of Eurasia, Denisovans in the east of Eurasia, and probably other humans as well. So we had, for example, on the island of Flores in Indonesia, we had the hobbits living. So these are very small, about one meter high humans, Homo floresiensis. And in earlier this year, another human species was discovered in the Philippines on the island of Luzon. And so at one point in the world, there were probably around five or six different human populations that were able to interbreed with one another. And of course, many people will know that we have that genetic legacy today. So people like me, for example, who ultimately come from Europe, have around two and a half percent Neanderthal DNA and people living in melanesia papua new guinea have the same amount of neanderthal dna perhaps a little bit more but also denisovan dna and so we're finding that in different parts of the world this genetic legacy which is a result of our initial movement outside of africa and our interactions with human groups that were living in eurasia has led to what we are today um, modern humans
4: i'd never heard this before that that we always assumed, didn't we, that humans had gone around; they'd killed everyone, sort of everyone else that they met, um, as we tend to do, and uh, and that was it. But there was actually interbreeding.
0: Yeah, this is the incredible thing. I mean, again, it's only in the last uh, ten years that this has been discovered uh, genetically. Interestingly, there was some suggestions by physical anthropologists that some of the human remains that we find that date to you know around forty to fifty thousand years ago had some evidence physical evidence that looked as though there was a a degree of partial mixing between Neanderthals and and us. And this um, has been now demonstrated by the power of um, modern ancient genomics. I'll give you one really fascinating example. Um, In 2006, I was involved in dating a human jawbone. It was found in a cave site in Romania, and it had a chin, so chins are one of the hallmarks mark features of modern humans like us. We all have chins, even infants have little chins, whereas Neanderthals don't. So this was identified as a modern human. So uh, a colleague of mine identified some features, however, of the jaw that looked archaic, that looked Neanderthal-like. And so he suggested that it may actually be some kind of hybrid. I I must say I was really skeptical at the time. But DNA um, evidence was, was, was obtained a couple of years ago, which suggested that the physical anthropology was absolutely spot on. Not only was there evidence for Neanderthal DNA in the specimen, but it was present in such large chunks that that must only mean that there was a very recent ancestor, a Neanderthal ancestor, in the life of this particular individual. And so we were able to say that this person had a Neanderthal great-great-grandfather. So four to six generations before this person lived, or thereabouts, there was a Neanderthal ancestor. And so we we're able to put actual generation times on the interaction between different human groups, whereas before we just simply couldn't do that. So the power of ancient DNA is really helping us to understand how it was that our groups met one another fifty to 60,000 years ago.
4: And so when we've got this interbreeding going on, did we pick up characteristics? Do we still have characteristics that we can point to and say, this is from Neanderthal, this is from the, these other groups?
0: Yeah, we do, and this is one of the most exciting things at the moment: is to figure out what we got from Neanderthals and Denisovans, and perhaps um, other groups that we are yet that we are yet to discover, and what was positive and what was negative. So we already know that there were some positive things. So, for example, we know that um, aspects of our uh, of our skin quality and our collagen and our hair actually comes from um, Neanderthals, and Neanderthals were living in. Very cool um, conditions, very icy conditions, for the most part in Europe, uh, for the previous uh, 300 to 400 thousand years, and so they had time to adapt and um, to, um, to to cope with these kind of conditions. And it may be that when we interbred with them, those were some of the things that we then selectively um, uh, used in our in our own genomes. In the case of the Denisovans, there's some fascinating evidence that suggests that. Um, the DNA from Denisovans was uh, at the heart of the adaptation of people to living at high altitudes. If you look at, um, for example, people from Tibet, they have a gene that allows them to survive at high altitude. It's called EPAS1, and it's a hypoxic gene. So it means that you can cope with very low levels of, of oxygen in your blood supply and then have children at high altitude. And this gene was a complete mystery as to where it came from. Did it evolve in humans? Um, Did people have to live at altitude before they evolved this um, particular adaptation? Well, the answer is that that DNA, that gene, is found in Denisovans, and it must have come from them, integrated into modern humans and given us this amazing advantage. And uh, earlier on this year, uh, a human bone was found in a cave in the Tibetan plateau, which was identified as Denisovan and dated to about 160,000 years ago, putting these people in that area of the Tibetan plateau and it may be that this is where that um that adaptation occurred
4: that is really fascinating now uh, one one last last thing we when we spoke um we were talking about diabetes because I understand the diabetes gene comes from Neanderthals and I said so does that mean they don't have diabetes in Africa did you find the answer to that
0: so um <laughs> the um that is a really uh interesting question god I wish I knew that I wish <laughs> I knew the answer that's in my head I've forgotten about that. Maybe <laughs> That's alright.
4: I'm, I'm going to leave you with that as some homework and you can come back to me on I'm that I'm going one. to
0: have to go and look into that. There's always another question that arises. That's the great thing about science.
4: While we wait for Tom to get back to us about my diabetes question, which I'm quietly hoping might alter the course of evolutionary science as we know it, I thought I'd bring our main query, where do I come from, back home to Aotearoa and to Otago University molecular anthropologist Lisa Matisu-Smith, who has herself had huge influence answering this Curly question, Lisa. Hi.
2: Hi. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Answer however you want. Where, where did I come from?
2: Where did I come from, or where did Where did you come from? That's That's the question I often fear because it clearly matters to people. Um, but there are so many answers to the quest that question um, at so many different levels. I, you know, I have an American accent. That's usually what people are. Oh, where are you from? You know, wanting to place you and and that whole. Concept of wanting to place somebody, I think, is a a human need. If you think about, you know, um, a pepeha, you know, uh, when you meet somebody, and you know, hi, who are you? Where are you from? People want to kind of conceptually place you. So the accent is something that obviously people. Um, pick up when i speak um here in in aotearoa and and so where are you from oh i'm from dunedin and you can see by the look on their face no that's not what i wanted to you know that that wasn't that didn't give me the right answer and it's like oh well i have an american accent yes uh, you know i was born in hawaii
4: that reminds me of a, a friend of mine who's um chinese um you know to look at her and my grandmother said to her once when she was at my uh graduation she said oh and where are you from and she said tauranga yeah <laughs> my yeah my grandmother gave her a look like no, that not wasn't the answer right answer for.
2: and that's i think that's the thing where where are you from there's no single there's no single answer where are we from where are we as as a species from whereas homo sapiens from you know yes ultimately we all come from africa but, you know, it really depends on the context.
4: Let, um, let's talk, though, about, about the, you know, one of the pieces of work that you're renowned for, which is actually relating to um, the Tangata Fenua. And where did, ha, how did people get here? How did the first people get here? How did yeah. you know, um, And you tell me about the work that you did with the DNA there.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess there's a how and from where. There, there, and those two questions kind of go together. Um, yeah. So I, I'm a biological anthropologist. Um, but I am an anthropologist by training. Um, I use biological tools to, to understand human origins. Um, and the work we've been doing on the settlement of Aotearoa um, and the Pacific um, ties back to that where do we come from question. Where, you know, What is the Hawaiki? And again, it's the same issue of how far back do you want to go? So we can talk about, about where is Hawaii? you know, from the stories, it is a mythological place, but there is, we have been able to identify through the DNA of not only... Um, Maori people, but also the um, plants and animals that um, that Pacific peoples carried in their waka. As they settled the Pacific, we can use those as markers to track the, the movement of the waka and therefore the movement of the people.
4: Can you give me an example of okay. that?
2: So I started my work looking um, at Radis Excellence, uh, DNA and ratus excellence is known as kiore in in the in Polynesia. It's a rat. It's rat. Mm. Um, it is a different species from the European rats, rattus ratus rattus and Rattus norvegicus. So it does not interbreed with those other species. Rattus ratticus. Rattus ratus. rattus. Ratus. Rattus rattus. Yes, and Rattus norvegicus. That's so. the, that's the Norwegian rat and the yep. ship rat. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they, you know. Um, the kiore, Eratus excellence, um doesn't travel in European boats. Um, it it has completely different kind of behavioral characteristics. It doesn't like to get its feet wet, um, and it was it was transported in the waka intentionally. It was a an important food item as well as a, a taonga. It, it had a lot of cultural significance, and in the same way that the British brought gorse and <laughs> all kinds of of things with them when they came here. Um, Pacific peoples carried uh, the plants and animals that were of cultural significance to them. So, um, so the kiore is one of those um, one of those Tonga, and I studied the DNA of the kiore from around New Zealand and was able to track them back through through the Pacific um, to the origin of the kiore. So we could trace the the kiore that were still living here on the islands, and the kiore living here are the direct descendants of those that were introduced by the first colonists. Um, so we found out where they were coming from, and they were coming from the Cook Islands and the Society Islands. So Rarotonga, Rayatea, Tahiri, uh, the, that, that group of islands. So we've identified the Hawaiki, and it's not a particular place, but a, a homeland region um, that is the homeland for really all of East Polynesia. It's a homeland for Hawaii as well, um, and it's the homeland for Rapa Nui as well as Aotearoa. So there's a central East Polynesian homeland. Um,
4: does the Kiore live? Is there a step before Polynesia? And, you yep. know, does the Kiore live in yep. Taiwan? So that's, or? The next, that's the
2: next. So we go, okay, so we can trace the Kiore from Aotearoa back to Hawaii, of the societies and the cooks. We can trace those back to West Polynesia. We can trace those Kiore back to island Southeast Asia. Interestingly, they do not trace back to Taiwan. They're not native to Taiwan. So while the languages, The Austronesian languages, which all all Polynesians speak and a large percentage of Pacific people speak, can be traced back to Taiwan. And many people hear about the Taiwan origins for Maori or for Polynesians. That's only the linguistic data. So um, we can also start to look at at the archaeological data and we can look at the genetic data, and that's, that's what we're doing now. We've moved from looking at the kiore and the kuri, the dog, to looking at, at human DNA um, in collaboration with, with indigenous communities here and across the Pacific.
4: You're talking about sort of multifaceted ways of of where did we come from? Yep. There is the DNA, which seems like the most sciencey way of looking at something, I suppose, in a way, right? And uh, but then there's you know, as you say, architecture. There's there's stories. There's also there's language. So how do you weave all these together to to, to build a picture?
2: That's the thing that's the most interesting and exciting for me, is that you do have... We as humans are complex, and we have complex cultures, and we make choices. We have some control over, over um, the choices that we make. There's so some building going on. There's some building going on, there, building, building going on <laughs> and, and creaky floors upstairs. Busy place. But, uh, yeah, the... I think it's the richness of, of what makes us human. And so while your DNA tells part of your story, it's not your whole story. And as, as you, you talk about, you know, your mother and, and her twin brother have different DNA. It's not just our DNA who makes us who we who makes up who we are. And so our history is, is similarly complex. So, you know, I can be sitting here in Aotearoa with an American accent and Estonian genes, you know, it's it's complex and you've got to understand that complexity and celebrate. I think celebrate that complexity. That's what I love is that um, that you know we can share we can celebrate our common origins and our unity and our diversity and um, appreciate that. And the more we can talk about these things and that it's not a black and white issue, that it, it that it's it's this very, very rich tapestry and it's I always say it's like a tukutuku panel. It's you can you're weaving together all of these lines of evidence, all of these and it and it ultimately tells that pattern that you see tells a story and that's the human story and that's that's what is biological
3: that's what anthropology and uh, that's what i love
4: and that's where we come from
3: that's where we come from thanks lisa that was lisa Matasu smith from the university of otago we also heard from tim hyam from the university of oxford and jj eldridge from the university of auckland And that story was produced for us by Damien Christie from the Aotearoa Science Agency. And that's our changing world for another year. I'll be back on the 23rd of January 2020 with a brand new season. But never fear, there is summer science to keep you company over the summer break. We will be beaming from your radio or your favourite digital device each evening. Just after the 7 o'clock news on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays. Catch you then. In the meantime, you can listen to tonight's story again at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. While you're there, why not stock up on some stories from our audio archive to keep you company over the summer break? You could relive the epic kākāpō breeding season with the kākāpō Files. Indulge in a marathon session of chemical elements with Elemental or peruse the ever eclectic lineup of our changing world stories. You'll also find everything I've just mentioned on your favourite podcast app. Thanks for your company, have a great summer break. Until next year it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier.